This is a special Federal Election 2019 episode of Spacing Radio. Before you go to the polls, we put together a special panel on urban issues. What's been promised and what's missing? I'm joined by Spacing Senior Editor John Lawrence, Toronto Star City Hall reporter Jennifer Pagliero, and TV Ontario digital media producer and urban affairs reporter John Michael McGrath. Stand by. And hello, everyone. Welcome. Uh, we are not in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West today. We've moved on up to a nice big boardroom uh, because uh, we're going to talk about the election, specifically the urban agendas or the lack thereof of the various parties. Thanks for coming, guys. I wanted to uh, just flash back first to, to start the conversation uh, because I remember uh, around the time of the election uh, in 2015, there was a lot of excitement. Uh, it seemed like every party... Uh, refreshingly wanted to talk about cities and they wanted to make big commitments to cities. You know, the NDP had a huge agenda. I was speaking to Tom Mulcair like early in the election and then uh, the Liberals and even the CPC to to a certain extent, uh, which was nice because cities used to be kind of uh, something no one wanted to touch in previous elections. Uh, and uh, we'll just start off by saying we're not seeing that this election. Uh, you've written about it, uh, John, uh, about how, you know, <laughs> through two English language debates and a lot of coverage, we haven't really touched on urban issues. Um, so w- why do you think that might be? It's, I find it quite perplexing, actually, because the, you know, there are lots of ways the federal government touches um, city dwellers, and it really isn't present, and it's very conspicuously not present. Uh, so, I mean, there are a couple of possible reasons. One is that the, you know, there was a time when there were external advocates really pressing uh, the federal government for a city's agenda, John Hondrick and the city's agenda from the uh, from the two thousands. There was the C five at one point, which was the five major cities, um, and there doesn't seem to be anybody sort of filling that space at the moment. So that's one reason. And you know, I've always assumed that municipal councils are like a great source of support for parties, um, and so for some reason those have been written off, um, and we're all like dead focused on affordability. Mm -hmm. And John Michael, uh, what do you think was missing this time around? Well, I think what would have normally been discussed in the context of um, urban policy or municipal policy, you are instead seeing, um, John hinted at it with the affordability lens, um, it has all been boiled down to housing and I think really as a secondary role, we're talking about infrastructure. Um, I remember a few years ago uh, before he was a federal MP, uh, Adam Vaughn talked about how the the transit uh, debate in Toronto during the Ford years had swallowed up so much of the city's attention that other pressing uh, policy issues just had not really gotten the, the time they deserved. And I think some of that has happened again uh, in this election with the real focus on um, housing affordability in, you know, obviously the largest Canadian cities, the you know, like that has has taken up all of the room for discussing a municipal problem. It seems like there's just no bandwidth 
uh, for anything else. And I think that's kind of silly given that we've <laughs> had a, a, a relatively long election campaign. But I think that's part of it is just that's, that's we, what people have decided. That's all we're going to discuss in terms of the municipal lens. Right. And Jennifer, I mean, talk about uh, uh, transit fatigue. Uh, the star has been doing great work covering uh, transit debates in, in Toronto, especially. Uh, but uh, I, I do feel like last, last federal election there, there were some interesting things coming out from each party uh, regarding transit. Uh, not so much this time around. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it seemed like, you know, previously there was uh, certainly promises for, you know, with large dollar figures on them, especially cities are interested in, uh, you know, infrastructure pools or any kind of pool of money that they are allowed to draw from where there aren't too many sort of, there's not too much rigmarole into, in terms of what they can spend it on. And we saw a lot of those promises and there are a lot of projects that have come out of uh, some of the liberal um, pools of money that they promised and then have, uh, for the most part, followed through on. But we can get to, you know, some of how that's played out post-election. Um, and I think, you know, John was right in saying that there's uh, a lot of opportunity for parties to get, you know, boon from a city council or a, or a city mayor. You know, John Tory is pretty willing to congratulate any of the party leaders on uh, policies that he thinks are beneficial for the city. And he's shown that he's willing to do that. You know, he was asked today in a scrum about that and he didn't really have much to say, but that's because there haven't been very many promises that he can sort of champion. He, he picked on a few, but even when, when I went to look through the party platforms to really like nail down what exactly they're promising cities, uh, I went looking for transit promises and it's really difficult, right? Like there's some stuff about electric buses uh, wrapped into climate change policy and then there's um, a few other you know mentions of you know urban transportation but not in the context of like building transit for cities and I think that's different from the last time right so I, I would just add that you mentioned the climate file and, and I did the same thing today of going through the various uh, platforms to see what they had on offer. And I was surprised at how much of what you might have in a prior election called urban policy was really folded into their respective climate uh, planks. Right. If this election is about anything, it seems to be about uh, climate change in particular for, you know, in good ways and bad ways uh, and sometimes superficial ways. But that that is the one thing. And, and cities... Uh, have a big contribution to make to to climate change policy. Oh, it's absolutely true. And I mean, considering that 80% of Canadians live in some sort of urban uh, zone, I mean, and what, 60% live in six big cities, uh, it's a huge contribution. But, you know, what's missing is the, you know, the high level, there's a high level conversation about, uh, you know, climate change policy. And there's, you know, the carbon tax, the to, you know, to and froing over that. But actually making... Uh, you know, bringing that policy down to the ground level, um, that part of it is totally MIA. Like mm -hmm. it's not present in the debate. Uh, and, you know, even, I mean, they all, you know, all the parties have some version of a home energy retrofit kind of, um, you know, mechanism, but it's still, you know, is it, you know, is it, you know, are they working with municipal partners? Is it like a direct to, um, you know, is it, you know, direct to the homeowner, um, the, you know, and, you know, and how do you decide, you know, how much of that money goes to, you know, sort of very large urban areas and um, how much goes to, you know, sort of smaller communities. 
None of that is clear. It's all very, um, like it's like been scrubbed away. Right. Even the, I just wanted to say the, mm-hmm. like the electric uh, bus example, it's a great idea. And in theory, having like a pool of money where a city, even like a, a middle-sized city could replace its bus fleet, like do retrofits or entirely replace its bus fleet over time with electric buses would be a huge improvement. But it, in the platforms, you don't see like a costing or that there is actually like a pool of money on which cities can draw from to make that kind of transit investment. You know, we've seen TTC actually making a lot of, you know, behind the scenes changes like that by drawing on federal infrastructure money. But it's not clear to me from the platforms that that kind of money is going to be available. And so because it's like John said, wrapped into these um, other policies like climate change, it's it's very vague. It's hard to say if cities will really benefit in the in the long run from these sort of lofty promises that are being made. Right. And John Michael, any and do you see the needle moving uh, in regards to you know climate change and, and big cities' role in that? I mean, in the broader conversation outside of this election, I think <laughs> you're seeing um, people understanding the role that cities have to play. And, um, you know, I think one of the big issues that people are becoming more cognizant of, and it sort of touches on some of the stuff that's been discussed in the election, is, um, you know, the role that cities have to play in, like, resiliency, in, you know, <laughs> we know that just with the climate change that is already baked in, that cities are going to get you know, walloped by bigger floods and worse winter storms and that kind of thing. And uh, this is the stuff that cities are going to be on the front line dealing with. And um, so I think there's there's been some uh, recognition of that. And you see it in, the, in some of the platforms. I mean, I think uh, one of the things that I noted when I, I looked through the big four uh, party platforms today was that they all had some language about, you know, disaster mitigation or resiliency, um, and, you know, <laughs> commitments of varying levels of, of funds to help municipalities deal with that. But I mean, I think anybody you talk to in this sector will tell you that um, the amount of money that needs to be committed is billions of dollars more than what is currently on offer. Right. Uh, so I was hoping uh, maybe we could go through some of the big um you know, sort of umbrellas of issues uh, that cities face, uh, big and small cities. We can we can put it out to you know Canada wide, uh, and uh, we'll just look at the good and the bad from each party. Uh, I think transit is a, a great place to start. Uh, so Jennifer, like you said, the you know that it's the Liberals' record to defend, and uh, they put a lot of money into transit in the last four years, and uh, their their main pledge is uh, three billion a year uh, from the infrastructure bank. Uh, continuing. So uh, let's start with the Liberals and their transit plan. Yeah, I mean, the public transit infrastructure fund, which is the pool of money that we're currently drawing from, uh, there's certainly, you know, lots of money pledged to, you know, just looking at Toronto specifically, uh, it has lots of very ambitious transit projects. You know, in Toronto, we have a history of not getting really any transit projects off the ground, uh, with the exception of the Crosstown, which is thankfully actually underway. Um, you know, of course, there's the complicating factor of that money uh, typically flows through the province. And we now have a provincial government that has different ideas about what transit priorities are. So I think the the ideal thing for cities is to have a pool of money from which it can draw for its own transit priorities. But I do think that 
it, it may be necessary to rethink how that money flows to cities. And that's sort of a broader conversation about the way cities are treated in this hierarchy. But uh, obviously having a, a, a lot of money that is uh, distributed to cities based on ridership uh, and not necessarily just population, uh, which can also help some smaller cities, which may have a, quite a robust transit system, but is not necessarily as big a city as other places, is super helpful. But uh, like I said, you know, yeah, the Liberals have this, um, uh, you know, additional $3 billion annually, and, and that's, uh, it sounds like a large contribution, but when you look at the scale, for example, of Toronto's projects, and you think about how that might spread out across the country, it, you have to really look at the the breakdown of how much money that would really mean for, you know, one Toronto transit project. It, it wouldn't necessarily even cover a one-third cost annually. So those are that's the kind of math you have to do, like John was saying, from the ground level, that it's hard to see how some of these promises will be very beneficial. Right. It doesn't dig a lot of subway tunnels, for instance. Certainly, certainly not. <laughs> and and we're not really digging subway tunnels anyways, so yeah. we're sort of log-jammed. But, um, yeah, $3 billion annually doesn't uh, necessarily get you very far on, you know, a relief line project that we know is, you know, on its own billions of dollars. And so, you know, we know that there are other cities building, you know, ambitious light rail transit, um, which also is not cheap. We, we saw in Ottawa that the cost ended up being much higher than was originally anticipated. So I think you do have to look at, you know, something that sounds like a lot of money is is not when you think about, you know, a few major cities and several billion dollars per project. Right. And you touch on something interesting to me uh, because it's it's not just Ontario that, uh, you know, has this new kind of return to the quote unquote common sense revolution. It's provinces all over Canada. There's kind of been, you know, in with the old and in with the new, these uh, people like Jason Kenney, Brian Pallister returned for a second uh, uh, mandate uh, basically from coast to coast. So I, I'm wondering you know, does it benefit the Liberals at all to uh, speak to specific projects in different cities when they uh, they might not have friends at the provincial level in almost any of the provinces? I, I mean, that's going to be a huge problem for, um, I, I guess you could just say any progressive party, if, you know, federally going forward. Um, the Liberals have a particular uh, uh, history already. I mean, in their in their first mandate, um, the the federal parliamentary budget officer pointed out that a lot of the federal funding they tried to roll out uh, in their first sort of wave of infrastructure spending uh, it, it simply ended up displacing uh, provincial funding, um, particularly in Ontario, where we had the Wynn government that was desperately trying to get a, a handle on its um, uh, fiscal deficit. Uh, so, so money flowed out of Ottawa and stopped flowing in Ontario in, in roughly equal measure. Um, that didn't happen everywhere, and it uh, new programs are, are uh, leaning much more on things like provincial and municipal matching. Um, but yeah, I mean that's going to be a, uh, a a big problem for the Liberals if they are in fact reelected. <laughs> Well, and, and I mean, looking on the other side of the the floor, uh, the day after what was the day after the one of the leaders' debates, Andrew Shear turns up in Toronto and starts talking about the Ontario line. So, so you know, that's the Conservatives' response to the you know ongoing you know demonization of the Premier, um, and he's you know he's aiming to use a local project 
as a, you know, as a way of, you know, kind of levering, leveraging votes here and probably is a pretty, you know, clear indication as to what would happen to, um, you know, Toronto's portion of, or the greater Toronto area's a portion of federal infrastructure funding under a conservative government with the caveat that the, uh, that the Conservatives said that they're going to cut $18 billion of infrastructure spending. So it might be totally a big bait-and-switch operation there. Well, that's a good segue because, uh, you know, it, it's been noted all over that uh, Andrew Scheer and the party will not really uh, <laughs> let the name Doug Ford uh, pass their lips. Uh, but they they did say the Ontario line, which is a Doug Ford government project. So uh, well, why... <laughs> Why are you allowed to say uh, Ontario line, but uh, the, the name Doug Ford for uh, the CPC is uh, might as well be Voldemort? I feel, you know, I think traditionally uh, promising popular transit projects has always been helpful for politicians. Like the Scarborough subway is the best example. You know, Stephen Harper and like his government backed it with with funding specifically for that project, which like hamstringed the liberals who were also more than happy to promise it uh, later on. And it's challenging because you promise something to a community in an election setting where, you know, the Ontario line, for example, we're about to find out from city staff, you know, whether it has any merit in their opinion, you know, what information they've even received from the province on how it can be built, how much money it might cost. We don't know even the most basic things about this transit project. It it might be a great idea, but we actually don't know. And so having a politician at the federal level come out and, and say that he will dedicate money to that project when it actually hasn't even been worked out in municipal provincial negotiations is is really challenging, I think, because, you know, John Tory doesn't know if Andrew Scheer will be the next prime minister and he's in the, at the negotiating table with a provincial government over something that he's being told that, you know, Doug Ford wants to build when the city doesn't really have control over its own transit destiny. And I think it just really complicates things for cities, uh, especially in a city like Toronto, where we're just really bad at transit planning. Right. Hey everyone, uh, it's Glenn from the future, and I just wanted to pop in to say that after we recorded this, uh, Robert Benzi of the Toronto Star reported that he had heard from Liberal sources that they would be supporting the Ontario line as well. This despite Liberal MP Adam Vaughan uh, that same morning on News Talk 1010 Radio uh, calling the Ontario line a ridiculous doodle that Doug Ford has produced. Uh, on with the show. And outside of Toronto, uh, have has the CPC mentioned any other particular uh, transit project? I mean, in, in Alberta, I think everyone's waiting for the uh, provincial budget to come out. Uh, and there, you know, if, if Andrew Scheer was elected, he would have a Jason Kenney to play with. Uh, but, uh, you know, Calgary and Edmonton both have uh, plans to expand their light rail line. And uh, I, I think both of those cities just want to know that that's going to continue. Um, I, I'm going to forget. Uh, which project it was, but I believe it was in Vancouver that uh, Andrew Shear said he was going to back projects that reduced uh, commuting times and he talked about expanding road, like highway lanes or something. And I think you could see on Twitter, every urbanist just start, you know, rending their garments and (laughs) grinding their teeth. Um, You know, it's 2019 and politicians are still promising that more road lanes will uh, cure congestion. Um, For listeners, uh, that's the George Massey, tunnel i think it's called and uh 
yeah, it seems that Andrew Shear doesn't seem to know, um, you know, the concept of induced demand <laughs> that if you expand roadways, more people use it. Uh, it's maybe counterintuitive, but yeah, wider highways do not solve congestion. So I just wanted to, uh, you know, I don't want to make fun of listeners who might not know, uh, but we can certainly make fun of a politician who's, you know, vying for votes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the whole framing of, um, you know, we're going to invest in projects that reduce your commuting time. Like, I understand why that is an appealing way to market a, a transit project or a road project. Um, but, you know, <laughs> in my ideal world, uh, politicians would also be a bit more modest about what they could promise. Because, you know, the reality is, you know, in large parts of this country, uh, trading your car for a transit commute is going to make your commute longer. There are other benefits to do it. Uh, you know, I take the, the subway to work every day uh, for a bunch of reasons that have nothing to do with the time. Uh, but it it is just, you know, a fact that it is it is going to eat some extra time. Mm-hmm. The, the one other point that I would add, because as you mentioned, and I think this is correct, that the that we have sort of a climate change election, is that the uh, there's still no really strong and compelling tether between uh, infrastructure uh, funding allocation for transit and climate, right? So there are better and worse ways of spending infrastructure transit dollars in terms of emissions, right? You know, uh, and, you know, we can think of what those are, but that's a kind of a layer of analysis that, I, yeah, I mean, it's not an election thing, but it, but it's it doesn't seem to be part of the uh, you know, part of the framework, the decision-making framework, we still have, you know, officially this kind of, you know, population model and unofficially a uh, political model. Uh, but, you know, th- I mean, coming back to our earlier conversation, I mean, if they were actually rigorous about this and if they wanted to, um, you know, find other ways of improving emissions, that would be one way of doing it, would be saying, okay, well, let's let's give the money to the most... Um, emission-reducing projects. And maybe it's buses in some places, maybe it's electric buses in some places, maybe it's LRT in other places. So, uh, But we don't see any of that. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to come to the NDP. Uh, you know, it's it's very similar that they want to fund transit. Uh, I don't think there's been extremely specific amounts or, you know, specific projects name. One thing that did kind of raise my eyebrow, uh, I think it's a, a noble idea, but... Um, the number, the date that was set for this, I wonder if it was almost a typo in the site I was looking at. But it, it says they they want to, um, uh, they want to switch all transit to electric by twenty thirty, uh, which can't be true, right? <laughs> because I mean, it's a noble goal, but uh, just in Toronto, just having watched for twenty years, people try to electrify the Go Rail. Uh, the, you can't do that in in ten years. You you can maybe electrify a, a single line or something. I mean, even the bus network, right? Like the TTC's right. bus network is uh, massive. Like we forget because when you're on the subway, you only really see the subway lines on the map. But the, most of the system is made up of buses because we failed to build subways. So it's the workhorse of the TTC, they say, right? And even switching all of those to electric, which is something that the TTC is actively looking at. Uh, would I'm I'm sure to actually renew the fleet and to even order that many buses would take longer than 2030. And and again, we're kind of focusing on Toronto here, but it just seems sort of unrealistic in you know Canada's largest city. So 
I mean, one thing that I think we've sort of talked around a bit, but you know, there's there's a really strong argument for either federal or provincial funding to uh, help cities cover the cost of uh, electric, uh, like battery electric buses. Um, they they are upfront much more expensive than your conventional diesel bus. Uh, but I mean, most of and I believe the TTC is going through this analysis right now. That you know, most of the proponents would say that they have a, a much lower lifetime cost. It's just getting over that that initial hump of of paying for them upfront. And so, you know, and also like in the particular Ontario context, you know, we have uh, electricity that we are literally paying other jurisdictions to take from us <laughs> at some points in the year. So it would be, uh, you know, at least potentially a win-win for transit operators to trade out older diesel buses for new electric buses that are going to last longer. They're going to be cheaper to operate over the long term. And also, by the way, they could use up some of that surplus electricity that we have. Um, you know, it, it, to me, it is, uh, you know... A, Maybe not quite a no-brainer because it is still you know a substantial amount of money, but it 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 is one of the the few policies that I actually like unreservedly endorse. <laughs> sure, yeah, but well, it's impossible I'm... without the actual uh, dollar figure attached to it, right? Like no, you, can, you can like try to will Toronto into replacing its buses with electric, but without providing you know the startup cash, it's it, you know there's nothing substantial that I saw in the platform either. Right. Well, I mean, the other thing is is that. Uh, you know, we have very high regulatory standards for our electric buses. So there are thousands and thousands of electric buses running in China, um, but we but they don't meet our test for what passes muster on the roads. So we forego that opportunity because. So you know, again, this is not an election topic, but it should be a governance topic, right? Is you know how you know how difficult are we making it for? Uh, you know, electric bus manufacturers to, you know, put their fleets on Toronto, you know, Canadian streets. And I think we make it pretty tough. And for the Green Party, uh, speaking transit, uh, anything interesting coming coming out of that party? I mean, I, I was, I don't know, I don't want to say I was amused, but uh, the pledge to ban all internal combustion engine vehicles by 2030 um I mean, I know there are other jurisdictions in the world that are pledging exactly that. Um, I cannot imagine it happening. Uh, the, the the political stars would have to align in some very unexpected way. Um, and yeah, I mean, like, I don't I don't own a car, so it's it's this isn't like my my personal. You know, uh, I, I'm not the guy who like loves the Ford F one fifty or whatever, as right. Andrew Shear said. Uh, I just I I. I find it hard to believe. Is it a kind of shoot for the moon and you might land in the stars or? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe. Um, and like, you know, uh, as we record this, the polls are looking uh, like it, it could very well be a minority parliament and, and maybe the Greens end up with enough seats to play Kingmaker. Um, uh, th- that would be a wild outcome. <laughs> right. I seem to remember Elizabeth May talking about free transit in the leaders' debate. Um, you did, could be right. Yeah. Uh, you, yes. You, you probably know well, better. NDP definitely, and I, we did forget to mention that, that the, the NDP is talking about a move. They didn't say, like, they, I don't think they gave a timeline, but they said we are going to start a conversation work about... towards fair free transit. Yeah, fair free exactly. transit. Um, Greens, I'm not certain, but uh, then again, I, I didn't go as deep in the Greens, and I apologize to any... Uh, the, the one thing that I notice in the green platform, because the other thing I do when I 
have ever opened a federal platform is like control F gas tax, okay. which was a big topic in the previous election. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's not a lot of talk about it again, which I think sets this apart. The gas tax is the gas tax is huge for cities, uh, largely goes to public transit and like it, you have to actually like search for it in the greens platform, but they do actually um, propose doubling the gas tax, okay. which is a significant amount of money for, sure. Uh, improving transit and those are the types of projects that I was talking about where the TTC is like retrofitting buses which is you know you know what you know they've called like the unsexy projects but like vitally important to them so I think that's actually a substantial promise even though it wasn't under the transit uh you know bullet points but it's actually, you know, it could actually work out to more than some of the other parties' promises. Well, that's a way of also aligning things that should be aligned, right? Like that, it, it is taxing the right thing, and um, you know, some of it goes to transit, some of it goes to other things, but it is taxing the right, um, you know, uh, the right type of um, consumption, right? And before, oh, sorry, sorry, I was just going to say, I mean, one <laughs> talking about what we go to uh, control F to find in these platforms. Uh, you know, I went looking for um, uh, rental housing issues and uh, I did note about the Greens. They were the only party that had a um, uh, an explicit commitment to uh, look at the tax treatment of rental housing. Okay. Um, this is one of those issues that, uh, you know, a handful of cranky obsessives I care about. Um, uh, cranky obsessives like me. Um, but, you know, the the... Long story short is that, you know, one of the reasons why we don't build a lot of purpose-built rental housing uh, in Canada anymore is because over the 70s and 80s, we changed the tax treatment of rental housing um, to make it substantially less attractive. And the green platform talks about reversing those changes and making uh, rental housing more uh, attractive as an investment again. And, uh, you know, that's another one that I think would be worthwhile. Right. Before we move off transit, I, uh, I will mention that all the parties in some way, shape or form mention electric vehicles and a move towards electric vehicles. I don't know if you guys want to talk to Frankly, I, I don't care that much. <laughs> I don't care about personal vehicles. If everyone moved to an electric vehicle instead of their personal gas using vehicle, great. Um, but, uh, you know, it still doesn't for cities, it doesn't solve the problems of congestion, it, you know. And uh, it's not a very equitable solution uh, in terms of getting people around. So uh, is that exciting to anyone or can we just leave it? <laughs> well, I just want to say that the that the city of Toronto's um, transform plan to do emission reductions depends heavily on this sort of um, magical thinking idea that a large number of people are going to move to electric vehicles over the next 20 years. Um and so I agree with you. I don't think it's a big thing. And it depends entirely on how much we tax gas, right? right. Well, if we tax gas a lot, then we'll get more electric vehicles. Okay. Yeah, I think, I mean, the only thing that, um, the reason that I would distinguish between like somebody's personal, you know, their Tesla in the driveway or whatever versus the um, electric bus issue that we described or that we, we talked about earlier is just, um, you know, one of the, the ways to think about this is that, you know, your car sits idle 90% of the time. And so whatever you are spending on that, you're getting most of what you are buying is an idle asset. And buses are on the road much more right. frequently. I don't know if it's 90% of the time, but it's certainly much more than uh, a car sits uh, parked. And, um, you know, I think for, you know, there are people, some of them in 
good faith, some not, uh, who are, you know, profoundly skeptical of the idea of uh, electric cars. Um, just in, in principle, they just think it's like a, a tinker toy for environmentalists. Um, but I would make the argument that even if you think that a Tesla is just whatever virtue signaling uh, for lefties, um, the case for an electric bus is much stronger. Yes, uh, definitely all, all in for electric public transit. Uh, so let's move on to the other big chunk that we talk about when we talk about cities uh, is, is housing. Uh, so uh, I think most of the major parties have committed different numbers of affordable units. I'm looking at uh, uh, 100,000 affordable units over 10 years from the Liberals, 500,000 affordable units in 10 years from the NDP, uh, 25,000 new uh, and 15,000 fixed or renovated uh, units per year from the Green Party. And uh, the CPC, they're going, the, they're going to ease re- um, regulations to presumably make it easier to build housing. Uh, that's a kind of a, a whole different thing. But at least three of the, the four major parties that we tend to focus on uh, are, yeah, they, they've committed to some level of building affordable units. So how do we feel about that? I just wish they'd talk about it. Uh, you know, it, it, like it, it, it's as if the only people who matter are are people who are taking out a mortgage to buy a house, <laughs> and you know, which represents you know some fraction of the urban population, but not such a very not a very big one. But if you listen to them, they don't talk about uh, you know affordable rental housing. It's like it's as it's like anathema. And the other thing that they don't do is say. You know, wh- where's the opportunity to marry climate change policy and affordable housing? And so, like in New York City, Bill de Blasio, whatever else you might think of him, has this very, very aggressive affordable housing strategy, and he's requiring, um, you know, the developers to, you know, put a lot of, you know, a lot of climate, uh, you know, sort of green building technology into these projects. So he's, you know, so you're getting compact development, you're getting. Uh, housing for people who are on the mar- you know more on the margins of urban society um, you're getting you know you're getting um, uh, you know mission reduction you're ticking off a lot of boxes but we are not talking about that at all I think all of the platforms are extremely lacking in details especially on this front it's sort of like you know whose affordable housing promise is bigger and you get these like incredibly large numbers you have to do sort of mental math to do the you know how many units over how many years to figure out whose promise is actually bigger but then when you stop to think about the fact that they rarely explain how they will enact that policy right it all comes down to you know what kind of incentives they're willing to offer what kind of land they're willing to give up like all of the nitty gritty stuff is like so important here and it's it's rarely explained you know we went through this in the last Toronto municipal election where you know John Tory promised a number and then Jennifer Keysmat promised a bigger number when you drilled down about you know whether actually whether either plan was actually achievable is when you started to like you know your head started spinning a little bit right, right. I, I do actually think you know what's more interesting and more important is what John Michael was saying earlier you know the greens are promising um, to work on the tax incentives for purpose-built rental, which might actually really start to have an impact on people who really need affordable housing and not just, you know, affordable housing at, you know, um, a a rate that is only going to help a certain band of, of people at a certain income, which is often, you know, much higher than 
the the people in Toronto who are who are more vulnerable, and we're, we're talking still about the people who are between like um, being on social assistance and needing to live in social housing to the people that can afford uh, potentially um, market rent. There's still this like huge missing band of rental availability in major cities that most of these policies aren't even touching on. And that's really, I think, probably disappointing for a lot of voters who live in cities. But like John said, no one's really even talking about it. So they don't even know that they should be <laughs> they disappointed. And that's, I think that's a huge challenge. Um, well, John, you, you recently edited and put out a book about housing. Uh, to your mind, what, what are uh, some things that a, a federal government could uh, move the needle on to uh, increase the housing stock for uh, you know people who are... Uh, otherwise kind of pushed out of the housing market? Providing public land, um, you know, which is what the mayor is talking about. And um, he told me a little while ago that that they actually asked the federal government for an inventory of federally owned lands within the city of Toronto. And it's quite a big list. And then they didn't ante up anything. So the, like, I mean, this is, it's huge that uh, it's like a huge incentive where the, you're not selling off the land, right? You're holding onto the land. You're bringing in, you know, you're bringing in developers who can build affordable housing, but you're taking that whole cost structure of land acquisition out of the equation. And that's what allows you to make, um, you, that's what allows you to, to create rental housing that's something other than luxury rental. Um, and so I think that as a baseline, all the parties should begin by saying, let's not use public land to pay down the long-term debt, let's use it as an asset that we hold on to, that we, you know, we make better use of um, to avoid downstream costs, like, you know, the problems that people have when they can't, you know, when they, you know, when they, their mortgage goes upside down, where they, you know, they have to flee the city because they can't afford to live here. Right. Uh, and you sort of, you brought up a, uh, uh, when we first started talking about housing, about, you know, why, why don't we talk more about rental housing? Why are we always talking about home buying, uh, that kind of thing? And, and uh, you know, the liberals and the conservatives, they both have something in their platform that's supposed to make it easier to purchase a home or, you know, uh, with the CPC, it's longer amortization rates for uh, home loans, a new stress test, which kind of got us into some trouble, I think, in uh, previous years, maybe the early aughts, but no one remembers that. Um, uh, and yeah, and same for the liberals. Uh, they've got first-time home buyer subsidies. That's very much on both of those parties. Um, they're speaking to the middle class, and uh, they're speaking to a slightly older generation uh, who um, they vote. Uh, and maybe that'll change in this election. Uh, you know, the millennials are a huge demographic, and I guess we'll see if they vote. Uh, you know, on the the morning of the twenty second. Uh, but. Uh, I, would you say that that's kind of the problem that's maybe a large part of the reason that we don't talk about uh, affordable rental in, in a federal election like this? Yeah. I mean, what's the proportion? How many people self-identify as middle class, like 80% of the population? <laughs> it's a very large number. And so, the you know, it's an aspirational pitch, um, you know, even to people who will never own a home anymore. So, um but I think that, you know, I mean, you, Jennifer, you talked about that big chunk of people who are, you know, between just below, you know, sort of average market and just above, uh, you know, subsidized. And they're ignoring that demographic completely. 
Yeah, I think it's really to the discredit of cities to ignore those people. You know, even looking at the the liberals' promise for the first time home buyers, they said that they would increase um, the incentive uh, to uh, eight hundred thousand uh, dollar qualifying value. And we know in a city like Toronto, there are so many people who can't even imagine. Uh, purchasing something for, you know, at that rate. But also in Toronto, it would be quite difficult to purchase a home nowadays at 800000 uh, and without having the extra cash to fix up a uh, derelict property. And so I think it's really missing the mark, but we know that they promise these things because they are popular with a certain demographic. But I also think that there is now, you know, a generation, my parents' generation, that's understanding that someone like me is now increasingly unable to afford home purchase in my own city. And I do think that some people are becoming uh, aware of that situation. And, and if they're looking closely at these policies, would understand that this is not really promising very much. Um, but again, I'm not sure that we're having that level of conversation, which is, it's challenging every election period where you're really talking about these things on a surface level. They promote kind of like the big numbers, you know, the, you know, just saying first time home buyers incentives sounds really great. Um, but it's really not, you know, in a city like Toronto where we know that, you know, half of, of all residents are renters. Uh, it's really not doing a lot to help with the problem we know is most prevalent, which is truly affordable housing. Yeah, and it's frustrating because, you know, this is an easy thing for the federal government to do. They regulate the banks, they regulate, you know, they, they have substantial, uh, you know, freedom of action within their own budget, that kind of thing. Um, but in terms of actually getting you know, new housing built, whether that's rental housing or ownership or whatever, um, so many of the barriers are really outside of federal control, right? I mean, uh, municipalities are going to be the ultimate gatekeeper to new housing one way or the other. And um, the uh, uh, conservative platform has floats an idea of a uh, build, more ho- build more homes competition that uh, municipalities would be given some kind of reward, I guess a financial reward uh, for eliminating, you know, I'm going to use the language of the, the Tory platform, but, you know, eliminating red tape and unnecessary reg- regulation. Is that a real uh, thing? What's the prize? Well, I don't know. I'm, the prize is paving over so, so, Southern <laughs> Ontario. <laughs> you get a, a conservative MP, uh, you know, cutting a ribbon in your in your riding. Um, the, Maybe a gazebo. But it, 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 it is such a... Um, like a, a minimal view of what uh, the federal government can actually do in this file. I mean, you know, within my lifetime, there were, um, you know, far more activist uh, federal governments, even under, you know, prime ministers who would not be considered, you know, raving socialists today. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the whole uh, co-op housing sector is, you know, uh, built in the seventies and eighties, right? Um, the, it, it, yeah, it is a, it's a, a very small view of what, what Ottawa can do. I mean, I think the one other thing that's really important to say to name is that there is still a very prevalent view in among a lot of politicians that, su- that subsidized housing uh, is dirty in some way that it, that, you know, it's you know it's for the undeserving poor and 
If you look at lots of other places, this is totally untrue. And I'll just say quickly that the Vienna model, which is like way, like a very, very long way from where we are, is, you know, is a housing model where uh, the vast majority of housing is rental apartment on publicly owned land. Um, there's a federal subsidy and the average, um, the average tenant pays 3% of their income on housing. And that's a lot of money that goes back into the economy that's not going to banks, that's not, you know, sort of tied up in the financialization of housing. And, um, and you know, I don't think that that's a city that's rife with the undeserving poor. I, I also should have mentioned, like, very quickly, which is that, like, there's that band that I was talking about, but it's incredibly important for the federal government to also be contributing to the maintenance and creation of subsidized housing and the Liberal government did promise after like much badgering to invest in Toronto Community Housing, which is the largest landlord in Canada. And, you know, because of the experience I think that the city has had with Doug Ford, I went looking to see if any of the platforms like recommitted to that. Because unfortunately, we're in a situation where we need parties to reassure us that they are still willing to give us the money that we were previously promised by another government. And it's often not until budget time that we actually find out whether that money is still coming. And I think that's something that we have to be really aware of. No one's really challenging them on whether that commitment is solid or not. But that is the kind of money that, like, if we don't get it, thousands of units in the city for the city's most vulnerable people right now. And I completely agree with John that we treat subsidized housing like it's only for, you know, those in this bottom income band when there are lots of progressive cities that are building subsidized houses for all kinds of people. You know, middle class people are living in these great co-op subsidized unit neighborhoods uh, that are integrated with um, the fabric of the city. But if we don't repair the units we have now, we're just leaving this incredible public investment to rot, literally rot. So that's something to also keep in mind. Um, well, uh, I think um, they're giving us the light, but uh, before I let you all go, uh, uh, I'd like to just get uh, you know a couple days now to E-Day. Uh, what, what are you looking for? What do you hope to see? Uh, the 22nd? Um, <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> No, I, I mean, I'd like to see, I'd like to see a little bit more specificity about what, uh, like, a realistic, achievable climate strategy is going to look like on the ground. And John Michael, um, yeah, I would say a, a, a clearer idea of how your how the priorities fit together, right? Um, as, you know, talked about how you can you can make your affordable housing and your transit investments and your climate plan all work together. Um, but uh, some of that is spelled out in some of the platforms, not in all of them. And I think that's a missed opportunity. And Jennifer? I think the the federal government has a pretty big role to play in the gun violence problem we're seeing in Toronto and not not only in Toronto, but in other places. And we've only seen, uh, you know, one major promise from the liberals in terms of extensive funding for what we know is addressing the root of the problem, which is community programs and not just guns and gangs spending. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see parties hedging on handgun bans. Uh, and stuff that could have a real impact. So I would like to see some more specificity on that because it's it's a problem that will be recurrent until someone does something about it. Okay, well, I want to thank you all, all three of you for uh, taking the time to uh, talk about this uh, engaging election. <laughs> thank you. Thank so you. Much.
And there it is, your Federal Election 2019 Special Edition of Spacing Radio. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this podcast, please give it a like, share, subscribe to it, or give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or you can email me at glynbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. In the meantime, go vote. Cheers. Cheers.